Um, if you guys have been with us for the past couple weeks, we have been going through our series in the book of Genesis. And I like how this table kind of uh, summarizes a lot of the events for us. So right now we are under the category of four great people. We wrapped up Genesis 28 last week, and we have, we have looked at the life of Abraham, we have looked at the life of Isaac, and now we are looking into the life of Jacob. Now, I just want to spend a little bit of time to kind of glue this together, glue all these three people together, and give us a little bit of context. Um, so, in a past, in a, in a past couple chapters, a couple chapters back, we find out that Abraham actually died at the age of 175. And I promise I'm going to get to a point with this. One. Um, and Isaac, during that time, because Abraham had Isaac when he was 100 years old, Isaac would be 75 at that time. Now, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, they were twins, when he was 60, meaning by this time, Jacob would be 15 years old. Now, why do I mention these things? If you look in your Bibles, if you look specifically in Genesis 25, what it does is it kills off Abraham, and then it goes, Jacob and Esau were born. Kills him off. But that's not really how it works. That's not really the right order because we see that they actually, in a certain period of time, they were all alive in the same time. Why then does the author of Genesis narrate it in such a way? Why does he kill off one generation and then focus the attention almost exclusively on the next? Why? Well, maybe the author of Genesis knows something that we don't. Maybe it is not about primarily Abraham or primarily about Isaac, primarily about Jacob. Maybe it is about something else. Now, going back, going back to Abraham, essentially God gave a promise to Abraham. He promised him, um, I'm essentially going to save the whole world through your family. That is God's promise to Abraham. He takes Abraham out of his godlessness, out of his paganism, and gives him faith, counts as a righteousness, and gives him this promise that I will bless the nations through your family. Now, the sense of this text, we see this in Genesis 22. This is where he gives a promise, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. Now, I appreciate how the ESV Bible translates this. Now, when you hear the word offspring, um, a little bit of an English class. Is it talking about plural or singular? Plural, right? Because I will multiply your offspring. So this word offspring can be taken as a plural. But one sentence later, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Is that plural or singular? Singular. Now, did the Bible make a mistake? Did the Bible make a grammatical mistake when it wrote this? No. See, essentially, God's promise to Abraham is, I will save the world through your family line, that there is one descendant from your family that I will save the world through. Which means, because the way genetics works and how being born works, you know, there is going to be one person from every single generation who will fulfill this promise of God, who will be part in that grand rescue plan that God has for us, and he will walk with the Lord. He will have a personal relationship with the Lord. And in Abraham's generation, it was Abraham. In his son's generation, it was Isaac. And now in Isaac's son's generation, we have Jacob. And last week, we talked about that exact moment. When did God make that covenant with Isaac's son, Jacob? By that chapter 28. 
Verse 14, your offspring, this is the same promise all over again. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Other, in other words, they will multiply. Again, plural. And in you and your offspring shall all the fa- families of the earth be blessed. Now, I know this is talking about singular. I know this last, path, this last line is talking about a singular offspring because of the simple fact that not all of Isaac's offspring, not all of Jacob's offspring were a blessing to this planet. They were not. They were horrible people. If you look at Jesus' genealogy, if you look at his family line, there were some messed up people in his family. When you go to Matthew and you see the line that Jesus comes from, it's supposed to make you say, like, what a messed up family. Like, you know, how could he possibly come? The Savior of the world, how can he possibly come from such a family. You just wouldn't expect it. And especially looking at Jacob's story, we're now looking at the life of Jacob. Um, even the way he receives this promise is through very unfavorable circumstances. How does he get this? Well, first off, when he was born, he wasn't who his father Isaac preferred. He wasn't the favored one. Number two, he had to steal it from his brother. And then what were the consequences of him stealing it? Now, what, what part of the story are we in? He is running for, from, for his life. He's being hunted down by his brother. And his mother had to tell him, you know, go run off to your Uncle Laban because your brother is off to kill you for what you've done. So far, not a very promising start to a story about the Savior of the world. Not very promising circumstances until... We get to verse 15. This is his conversation with God. He goes, behold. Now, before I move any further, when it says behold in the Bible, it doesn't mean ta-da, like, you know, like a magic trick. That's not what behold means. What it essentially means is listen very carefully to what I'm about to say next. That's what behold means in the Bible. It doesn't mean Ta-da. It's not, you know, he's not David Blaine, not David Copperfield. You know, if I make references throughout this sermon, I try to do two, one for the younger generation, one for the older one. So I'll try to be consistent with that one. He's on the run with nothing to his name, broke, penniless, and running for his life. And all he's holding on to, this is where we find him in our story today. This is where we find him. All he's holding on to the only thing he has to his name is this promise that God told him, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is God making a promise to Jacob. And as we see this story, we'll see this isn't necessarily a story about somebody who is faithful to God, but God being faithful to a person and fulfilling his promises. So we go to our passage today. By the way, today's message is called The One You Love by Glenn Fry. No, but it is found in Genesis 29, 13 to 35. Rest in peace, Glenn Fry. <laughs> so, so I see the older crowd are laughing, so they did get that reference. I did keep in mind for that one. Anyway, so Genesis 29, 13 to 35. You guys have your Bibles, please turn there. I do not have it on a PowerPoint. You guys have your iPhones, your Androids. Please turn to Genesis 29, starting in verse 13. And that's where we'll be spending the rest of our morning at.
starting in verse 13, as soon as Laban, that is Jacob's uncle, heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, essentially his whole story. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, just an interesting note. Where was the last time we saw a statement similar to that? Where this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh? Genesis and creation, when, when God created woman and man first saw woman. So it is signifying that they are family. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, my family, should you ther- therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wage be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time... I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Before we go any further, let us um, come to God in prayer. God, we just ask that you be with us right now, that you help us. Because apart from you, apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand your word. These are just random words apart from you, God. So we need you to help us. 
more than you need me to speak in front of these people, Lord God, we need you. So we ask, Lord, that you would protect our time. You would be with us in this time. You would protect us from making church into an entertainment. We have enough of that in our daily lives. Help the church be different. Help us to come here to love your word, to love you. Help us in this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So I have only three points for you. First one is expectations versus reality. Number two, the one you love. Number three, the one who loves you. So if you guys know the song that I'm referencing, those will be very familiar lines. So first off, we have expectations. Now this whole first, um, the first couple of verses from 13 to 15, it is setting up this story. So, so far we know that Jacob has been with, with Laban for about a month. And then Laban opens up with an offer to him. It was a very generous offer. He says, um, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, my family, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? It is very rare that we get an offer for how much we want to be paid for. So this is a very generous offer. And remember, Jacob is flat out broke. He has nothing to his name. All he has is this place that he could stay in, probably get fed in, but he has nothing. There's nothing to pay for. Like, he can't pay for his stay. And then it shifts. It goes, now Laban had two daughters. So it gives us an idea. What is Jacob really interested in? He had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, it goes, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Now, this is a very interesting statement. It goes, Leah's eyes were weak. It's, not, it's obviously not talking about Leah's eyesight here because it follows it up, but, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So it's not saying that, okay, Leah's eyes were poor, but then Rachel had eagle vision, right? Like, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about their appearance. Leah's eyes were very weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And I like how it dedicates this one sentence to this um, statement. Verse 18, it goes, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, this is an interesting exchange, both literally and figuratively. What do I mean by that? Um, exchange meaning as in a negotiation. Normally during this time, and I know this sounds kind of archaic, kind of old school where we buy wives, but in this context, in this point in history, the number, like the average going price for a bride payment, the bride price, is around 30 to 40 denarii. Now, I have a point to this. Um, a month's work, on average, is one and a half denarii. So for Jacob to be able to pay for his wife, meet the amount, he would only have to work, and I did the math on this, it was he would only have to work one and a half years. How many years did he promise? Seven. Jacob, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you, church, Jacob was not bargaining. It was not a hard bargain. And so when he sees, when Laban sees this, this man who is clearly not bargaining, clearly not trying to make a hard deal, he sees an opportunity. 
we see what family Laban comes from. Because remember, when Jacob deceived his father, who was the influence? Who told him to do the things that he did? His mother, right? And this is his mother's brother, his uncle. And Laban, like a car salesman, right? Now, I don't know if anybody's a car salesman here. No offense. But, you know, I just got to tell you, the dealership always wins. <laughs> you, know, like, you may think you're getting a good deal. You may think you're getting a low monthly, but you're really not. So, like, you know, sorry, that's just a, a hard truth. But Laban, like a car salesman, what does he say? You know, it is, it's better that I give her to you than any other man. Stay with me. That's not a yes. If you guys look at it, no matter how you look at it, that is not a yes. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of teetering on yes enough to hook Jacob on a false promise. That's what it is. And so for the next seven years, he is fully convinced that this man is going to pull off his end of the deal, which he doesn't. So it runs into family. We've seen Rebecca do it. We've seen Jacob do it. And now we see Laban do it. So he's seeing, he's seeing his nephew, seeing this kid's an amateur. I got this. Like, this is easy for me. So he does. That's what he does. So verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, the question I ask us is what exactly, what kind of love is he talking about here? I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to tell you. It's not a love for a person. And we'll see this more clearly later on. He doesn't, at this point, not, at least not yet, he doesn't love Rachel as a person. He loves Rachel as an idea. Because what was God's promise to Jacob? I will multiply, I will bless you, I will bless your offspring. So he's running for his life. And he's probably thinking, how is God's promise going to come true for me? How exactly am I going to be blessed through an offspring if I don't even have a wife? I'll tell you right now, what Jacob is doing in this passage, he is taking God's promise into his own hands. He is finding his own way. How else am I going to have kids if I don't find a wife? He's in love with the idea, not the person. And we see this more clearly in verse 21. He goes, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, this is a small detail that can be so easily missed. But if you take yourself back to ancient you know, culture, this isn't a typical attitude to be this brash. To be this crass about your emotions, to be this sexually forward, it is not customary. So what this shows us about Jacob is that he is a brash man who is totally emotionally and sexually overwhelmed with longing, with yearning, with desire. He is overwhelmed by his desires. Because for him, it's not just about finding a wife. This is about Jacob's whole life, his purpose in life. That's why he's so sold into this. It's Jacob's whole life, his value, 
Like, you know, this whole, my whole life, I've been second best. My whole life, nothing's gone my way. I've had to do, you know, crooked and twisted ways to get it done my way. But now, finally, in Rachel, if I just have Rachel, everything would work out fine. I'd finally find the value I've been looking for my whole life. This is, this is crazy because if you look back at how things played out, Jacob already had a relationship with God when he's doing all these things, when he's thinking about all these things. And despite the promise and assurance of God, he still takes this promise into his own hands. He still tries to do it his own way. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Now, this is just for some practical notes. And the reason why I mention this is because it's just to give you, like, to paint a picture of what this, what a story looks like. Um, Needless to say, there weren't a lot of lighting back then. And, and you know how they dress traditional garb of um, these Middle Eastern cultures is they, they wear veils so you could only see them in their eyes. So this isn't so shocking that, you know, it's so easy to pull this off. And, and like, when they partied for weddings, they partied hard. Like, you know, they, they turned up. So, you know... It's just included, it's just part of it that, you know, Jacob wouldn't be in the proper mindset to make clear judgments. And so you see just how Laban, you know, orchestrates these things. He's very crafty. Then now this is where the story kind of transitions. So all up until this point, Jacob is expecting something, his own idea of fulfillment, his own idea of value. But starting in verse 25, this is where we see reality come crashing down on him. Verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? This is a typical reaction for somebody when reality comes crashing down on you, on your expectations. It's nothing new. But what follows is even more perplexing. <laughs> if you look at verse 20, 26, after um, Jacob accuses Laban of deception, this is all Laban had to say. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Told you, car salesman, right? Like, you know, those hidden fees. But... Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Now let me stop right there. If you were in this position, would that be enough excuse? Like, okay, fine, I guess I missed that, so I'll, I'll just do it again. Like, you know, it's not a very, it's not a very satisfying excuse, is it? I say this passage is perplexing, not because of just like the externals, 
But you have to look in between this. What's surprising for me is the lack of reaction on Jacob's end. When Laban said these things, what did he do? He just went with it, right? Why? It's unfair. It's not right. You deceive me. I worked so hard for you, and you pay me back with deceit. But then why does Jacob all of a sudden just fold? Well, you look again at verse 26. What does Laban say? It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In other words, it is not so done in our country to put the younger before the firstborn. Doesn't that sound familiar? Church, I tell you, when Laban told that to Jacob, it struck a chord in his heart. Images of what he did came rushing down into his mind, into his heart, and he knew exactly what that meant. Chapter 27, 35. This is what Isaac had to say about his son Jacob. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. It is the exact same word used that Jacob accuses Laban of. Not only did Jacob get a taste of his own medicine, but it also hit him extremely close to home to give the younger before the firstborn, to put the younger before the older. And we see in verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, of course. And he served Laban for another seven years. Now, this is where the story really begins to shift. Because in 29, verses 16 to 18, we see the life of Leah being described. By seeing what Jacob thinks of Rachel, meaning he loved her very much, what exactly was left for Leah? When we see what Jacob thinks of Rachel, we also see what he thinks of Leah. And this has been a theme of Leah's life, as you will see. From the beginning, the very first description of Leah, it was already a comparison. Now we go again, and then now it is another comparison. Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. The reason for this is because it is describing, it is painting a picture of what Leah's daily life looks like. The girl nobody wanted. The less favored older sister. And again, doesn't that sound familiar? Wasn't Jacob the unfavored brother? The one nobody counted on? The only person ever loved him was his mother? Didn't see love from his father? Wasn't going to get any blessing? You know, the Bible is masterful in showing these ironies. Despite Jacob loving Rachel more, we realize that his true soulmate, if there ever was one, if that is actually a thing, is not Rachel but Leah. They're a perfect match. Very quickly, as we look into Leah's life, 
call this section The One You Love. And to put this into context, I'd like the church to read this together with one heart, um, starting with your, your heart. Perfect, thank you. <laughs> that is the reading of Glenn Fry. Um, the reason I bring this up, this is exactly the choice that Leah has to make, as we see how it describes her later on. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, so just one verse before it says, Jacob loved Rachel more than he did Leah, but now he goes, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now let me stop there. Men. I like how your heads just all went up, but men, this is where I want to talk to you. The most hateful thing men can do, husbands, the most hateful thing husbands can do is to be indifferent. More than yelling and doing all these things, the most hateful thing you could do to your wife is to be indifferent. That when a word needs to be said, you shut down. Fathers, the most unloving thing you could do to your kids is when they are in need, you will be indifferent. Now, I know when you look at me, you're probably thinking, you don't have the pedigree to talk about these things. Because you've only been married for negative five years. Like, you know, like, it's just non-existent. You know, like, it's not happening. But here's the thing. I do not have, okay, I, I may not have the authority to speak on this based on experience about raising your kids, but I do spend time with your kids. And here's what I want to say about that. There's a very clear difference between their regard for you when you are indifferent compared to when you are faithfully engaging your kids with the gospel in every aspect of their life. I have seen the difference. Men, this is what God has called us to. This is what God, I pray that when I, when I get to that stage, I will do this faithfully as God commands it. We are to continually engage and love our spouses, our children, with the love of God. And it's not easy. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. The name Reuben is similar to the Hebrew word for seeing or looking. For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his, his name was called Levi. See, this picture of Leah that we have, this is the perfect picture of what unrequited love looks like, unreciprocated love. 
All she did was love Jacob. All she did was try to earn his approval. Did everything right. Constantly trying to earn the love of her husband. She was finding her value. This is a good thing. It is it's not a bad thing to be a wife. It is not a bad thing to be a mother. She's trying to find her value in all these good things. But if you look at the picture of Leah's life, a life of comparison, every time Laban's two daughters would be brought up in, in conversation, it would always be, okay, you know, this is Leah, but get a load of Rachel. And, and, and you look at Leah's story, when you try to look at it from her perspective, now when she is married to Jacob, maybe this is where my life will take a turn for the better. Again, doesn't that sound familiar? But what happens? Her whole life she lives under the shadow of her younger sister Rachel, finds a possible resolution in Jacob, and what happens one week later? He's marrying Rachel too. She's just back. And it's even worse because they live in the same household. I have to live in the same house as this person that I'm constantly being compared to and I'm receiving no love from my husband. She's in hell. The way she words it, the Lord has seen my affliction. See, this is the danger of us placing our value, placing our yeah, placing our value on, on people. It's never enough. What's amazing, when you look at these stories, it kind of proves to you that these really are some messed up households. There are a lot of family issues they need to resolve. Because the point of the story isn't who we love. The point of the story is who loves you. If you look again at verse 31, it goes, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. If you paraphrase that, what that's saying is, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he loved her. In 35, it goes, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, then she ceased bearing. Now, the interesting thing about Leah's segment of the story is this is the first time we've seen in this whole story that the word Lord ever mentioned. And it's not just Lord in general. If you look in your Bibles, it should be Lord as in L, and then it's all caps. It all, it's all capital. And there's a significance to that. It's not just because it looks cool. The reason the Bible writes Lord in different ways, it calls God, God, and sometimes it calls him Lord, and sometimes it calls him Lord in all capital. The reason it calls him all capital Lord, it signifies the covenant personal name of God. It is only the people with a relationship with God that get to call him that. 
So when God made a promise to Jacob, that is when Jacob started calling him Lord Yahweh, God's personal covenant name. And then we see in all of Leah's conversation with God, she calls him Lord Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh will finally see me. The Lord Yahweh will finally make my husband love me. The Lord Yahweh has seen my suffering, my affliction. So we see that Leah actually has a relationship with God. How? When? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say it. But how Leah addresses the Lord using his personal name signifies a relationship. And this is what this tells us. If you look at the backdrop of Leah's life and you look at her existing relationship with God, this is what this tells me. The Lord will allow afflictions, hardship, and suffering into the lives of the people that have a relationship with him, into the lives of believers. believer. I'll say that again. The Lord Yahweh will allow hardships, trials, and sufferings into the life of the believer just as much as he would allow blessings into the life of the believer. Because why? Leah having a relationship with the Lord suffered through all these things, but she was also blessed with children, which were a good thing, which were blessings from the Lord. So we see that the same God who would allow these hardships into our lives will also allow blessings. And here's the thing. The order is not always the same. Don't ever think that when God allows suffering in your life, he owes you blessings by the end of it. That if you go through six months of persecution and hardship, he owes you a year of blessings. And I'm going to take a very quick segue here. And look at Romans 8, 28 to 29, because this is one of the verses that gets taken out of context way too often. It goes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I have to include 29 in that because... We can't just live off 28. I say this is so misquoted because some preachers will use this verse and tell you that when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, you know, God may be giving you some hardships now, but he's going to make up for it later on. That this year is going to be your year of breakthrough. And how does he define breakthrough? Taking away your debt? Fixing all your relationships? Fixing all of your problems? Jesus had a lot of problems. And if we're basing off what a blessed life looks like, we need to be sure that we consider Jesus' life a blessed life. And Jesus' life was filled with suffering, filled with affliction, filled with strained relationships, nobody to trust. Instead, this is what this verse promises us. And several people have phrased this way better than I could ever do. Pastor Tim Keller says, God does not promise to bless Christians by removing suffering, but to bless Christians through suffering. Jesus suffered not so that we might not suffer, but so that in our suffering, we would what? 
Become like him. That is the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about, folks. That is the good that Romans 28 is talking about, church. Brothers and sisters, if you do not have a relationship with God, Romans 8.28 is not good for you. There is nothing good to be found there if you do not have a relationship with God. Because who, what non-Christian would want to be Christ-like? It just doesn't make sense. This is only good news for the believer to be conformed to the image of God, that he will use even your suffering for the ultimate good of becoming more and more like him. That is the good that it's talking about. Another quote, this will be the last one. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that in trusting Christ, everything goes like you want it to go. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is we get God regardless of circumstances. And he'll be enough. He'll be enough. That is exactly what happens in Leah's story. She called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Again, the, the author of Genesis is very masterful. He stops it right there because he knows we reach a very crucial point in this story. That she finally understood. She finally stopped looking for her value, looking for love from her husband, and she decided, I know that somebody already loves me. More perfectly, more beautifully than any other person in this world can do for me. The author of Genesis knows how the book ends. And he tells us in this moment to look at Leah. Why? Because God looked at Leah. God saw Leah. And what was he going to do with Leah? Why does it end with Judah? Again, this shows us that we can never outsmart the Bible. We can never outgrow our need for the Bible. Because here's what it's talking about. We talked about the generation of Abraham. We talked about the generation of Isaac. We talked about the generation of Jacob. Now it is time to look at the generation of Jacob's children. Who in Jacob's children's generation will inherit the promise that God promised Abraham, God promised Isaac, and God promised Jacob? Who? Exactly. See, this is why we need to read our Bibles. The one who will receive that promise is not Joseph. We think it would be right. He's a great candidate. You know, just a, an amazing, you know, redemption story. But no. It's Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The line of Judah, that is what the Bible says. And God willing, I hope that I'll be blessed with the chance to preach on Judah next time around in Genesis 38 because it is a wonderful story. Because what you will see, starting in Genesis 36, it is Joseph's story. 37, Joseph's story. And in 38, it takes a sharp left turn into Judah. And it's one of the most messed up stories you will ever read in the Bible. And you're like, Why? That's why you need to know how the whole story ends. 
God will use Judah to bring about the promised Savior, the promised Messiah, that he would come from Leah's family, not Rachel's, through Judah. Again, not the favored candidate, not the favorable, not the favorite sibling. He's not even the oldest. He's not even the firstborn. But God used him. And the reason why God does this, the reason why God chose Leah's family, the reason why God chose Judah to to do it in this way, because God was using the life of Leah to show what salvation would look like. To show us how salvation was going to come to our world. To show us what the gospel looks like. I highly recommend this for you, anybody who has children. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is what it says towards the end of Leah's story. It says, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. One of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince. The prince of heaven. God's own son. This prince would love God's people. They wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them. He would love them with all of his heart. And they would be beautiful because he loved them. Just like Leah. When when it talks about they would be beautiful because he loved them, that's what we sang about this morning. Dressed in his righteousness alone. The only reason God can possibly look at us and declare us beautiful and righteous is because of what Jesus did for us. And God uses the unloved, the unfavorable one, uses the foolish to shame the wise. That's what the gospel looks like. Leah was hated because Jesus would be hated The Father would send His only Son to be hated so we could be loved. What this shows us, this is what sets Christianity different from all other religions. Again, in the names of God. All other religions have a God, but they do not have a Yahweh. All other religions, it is a God that you have to earn your way up to appease that God so that he would bless you. But here we have a God, Yahweh, who comes down to our level and loves us. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, he comes down to be with us. Unlike Laban, he is not a father who treats us as unwanted Jacobs and Leahs, but he always sees you like a Rachel deeply loves you like a Rachel. Sees you as beautiful. He's not a God at the top of a ladder waiting for us to come up. But instead what he does is he comes down and he wins us over from our idols. Shall we pray? We should. What a wonderful maker you are, God. That you would deliver your message, you would deliver your word, you know, ever since Genesis in such a beautiful way.
God, we just ask that these words, your beauty in this moment, would not just be some temporary emotion we feel right now, but it would be a truth for placed firmly in our hearts. God, I just pray for the people here right now that if you are speaking to them individually, if they've never had that personal relationship with you, if they've never had that, they've never been part of that promise you've given us, to be able to call you Yahweh, to be able to call God Father. If they have not yet arrived at that point and they are hearing that call right now, I pray you would soften their hearts. I pray they would not delay. They would not think for a moment that they could just do this later on, some of their point, some of their time, that you would speak to them in the same way because, God, you're speaking to them right now. Pray would you, you would open their hearts specifically. I pray, Lord, that in every moment that we doubt, when we look at our own lives and we, we think we're so unfaithful to you, that there's no possible way that you can love us because our love for you is imperfect. I pray we would remind ourselves over and over again that it is not our love for you that makes us right with you, but it was your love for us shown through what Jesus did for us that makes us right with you. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.